Hello, welcome to another episode of The Caring Instinct. Our guest this week was Benjamin Perry, who wrote a book called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. Benjamin is an award-winning writer and a minister at Middle Church, and the book is one of a kind, really. Yeah, there's nothing like it, is there? Yes, a book about why our tears matter, and this is what the conversation is about. He is brilliant. So it's the other side of the coin to the stiff upper lip, isn't it? Yes. Have you started the exercise yet? No. I have. Have you? I have. How did it go? Yes. Don't tell anyone yet, I suppose. No. Wait till the end. (laughs) Well, we hope you enjoy and we'll see you at the end. I thought we'd start off with with a quote from one of our teachers, Gordon Newfeld. The world will be saved by an ocean of tears. The world will be saved by an ocean of tears. I love that. Yeah. Tell us about your book. We've got it here. All about tears. Cry baby. How how I'm going to save the world. (laughs) A bit more pressure for you there. Exactly. (laughs) So my book is called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. Uh, And it is a book that starts off in my own journey as somebody who didn't cry for more than a decade, uh, chronicling how I learned how to cry again, but more importantly, how I learned how to feel again. And then from there, it goes into the science of crying, physiology to psychology, crying in literature, all to say if crying is this deeply embedded part of our humanness, if it's psychologically and physiologically beneficial, if it's linked intrinsically to transformation in our sacred myths and in poets' minds and in our core stories, why don't we do it more? And so then the middle chunk of the book goes over all the different social forces that keep people from crying openly. And then the last third asks, if you could get rid of all of that, what would a world shaped by more open weeping look like? Yeah. And it's interesting that you, you know, jokingly frame as an ocean of tears being able to save the world. Because one of the things that I say at the very end, spoiler alert, <laughs> is that, um, you know, I've gone through this whole book about all these reasons why I think crying is so essential and so important. So then I sort of rhetorically frame the question, can crying save the world? And my answer is a, no, of, of course not. <laughs> like crying is is crying. It's, it's one thing. But like, I, I earnestly believe that it can help. I think that it can help people feel more at home in their own bodies. I think it can help uh, uproot some of the toxic masculinity, which has such a stranglehold on our culture. It can help people see through the kinds of racism that masquerade as care. It can help us understand in a really core way who we are and what we want and how we can collectively transform to get there. And so even if it's not the silver bullet, if it can help, we should really be doing it more because we need all the help we can get. In our language and culturally, there's so much that points to why tears don't matter. So there's no use crying over spilled mm-hmm. milk and all that. So why do tears yep. matter? That's a great question. Someone wrote a really good book about it. Um, no. <laughs> so, so there's a few reasons why I think tears matter. On a purely physiological basis, one of the things that's fascinating to me about tears is that tears connect us to one another. That's one of the findings they've shown again and again when people do research, uh, where they show people faces that are not crying, and then they digitally add tears to those same faces. What they find is that 
when people see someone else crying, they feel more tender towards them. They want to help them. They feel connected to them in a way that they didn't when they weren't crying. And I think this really has an evolutionary basis. And most evolutionary psychologists will suggest this, that in the evolutionary environment when we were developing and developing the capacity for tears, tears served as this really beautiful way to solicit assistance uh, silently. You know, a child could be crying without making a noise and the, the parent could understand that the child needed help if there was a predator nearby. Um, but also just in a more mundane, quotidian way, crying actually facilitates bonds outside of our immediate kinship structures. And that's one of the things that really makes humans, if not unique, at least it's, it's one of the hallmark attributes of human culture is this willingness to help people who we are not biologically related to, who we do not have a genetic reason to want their genes to survive. We still want to help them because we understand that our, our flourishing is interconnected. And crying is one of those things that people point to that reliably facilitates this kind of connection. And I think particularly right now, when so many people are feeling isolated and alone, certainly through the pandemic, but I, I think this, you know, these forces of solitude and alienation predated that. When so many people feel this way, we desperately need to embrace the parts of ourselves that are going to solicit connection from a from a wider world. I think that a lot of, you know, we can sort of dive into, I can get very sociological yeah. uh, very quickly and get far away from crying, but, you know, a lot of the different cultural patterns we have, social media, um, you know, uh, workplaces where we are not, we're discouraged from really interacting and forming bonds with the people we work with because we're supposed to be, you know, doing the work. These capitalist forces, like there are so many things that are pushing us away from one another that having this innate physiological process that actually brings us closer together, what a remarkable gift. And I think honestly that when people discourage crying, historically, I actually think it, it comes from a place because people recognize that capacity for connection and want to discourage it because there are people who benefit from keeping us apart. That was a question that comes for me is where do we take a wrong turn like away from tears in society or growing up? We work with children and, and work with a lot of parents mm -hmm. and it's really common to hear they get really frustrated with tears or they think they're doing a good job if their child's not crying they think i'm a great parent you know my <laughs> child's not cried for a month or what. barely makes any noise at all yeah yeah where do we in your eyes where do we maybe make a wrong turn yeah. away from them the thing that you have mentioned rightfully is that tears are disruptive that is that is really true that you know when somebody starts wailing be it a child or anybody else yeah uh, everybody else takes notice. You know, it, it really commands attention, and obviously, that can, you know, particularly for someone like a, a parent or a caregiver who is, you know, constantly taking care of a child and has to, you know, repeatedly uh, disrupt whatever they're doing to to attend to the cries. It can be frustrating, obviously. But I, I think that same quality of tears as disruptive is also one of their really beautiful characteristics. I think that we in a adult culture, instead of, you know, taking it away from the, the child who's crying, but, you know, looking at it in an adult society, we desperately need more disruption. We've gotten far too numb to this, this crushing nihilism 
that has become or in cynicism that has just become de rigueur in the way that we oftentimes relate to a social system that many of us feel is crushing us that a lot of people feel every day like they are living in systems beyond their power to change and it's easier to make snide jokes or to joke about like oh i bought i bought too many avocado toasts i'll never get a house then contend with the fact that we live in social situations where that it placed home ownership beyond most people's financial capacity and i think crying is an admission of the pain of living in, in these kinds of systems and when we admit the pain we are suffering it invites other people to realize oh i've been experiencing that pain as well and again i think this is why people would like us not to cry, especially, you know, adults are, are told that, you know, tears are weak, that they are not appropriate, particularly in professional contexts. Like, who does that benefit? It benefits the people who have constructed these professional contexts and don't want them to be disrupted. In my chapter on uh, femininity and tears, I, I write about um, my wife worked at a, like a women's media website that you know was this big startup um and their their whole mission was we're, we're gonna you know, we're gonna change the way that people consume news we're gonna you know uproot patriarchy in the, in the media room um and yet when i was interviewing all these folks she worked with every the, the workplace was so horrendously abusive in their expectations for people's productivity that everybody reported crying all the time but all of them did it privately there was like a staircase in the office that was known as like, that's the place you go to cry. Like that's the crying staircase. And sometimes you would get there and someone would already be crying in your crying spot. And so then you'd have to go find a backup crying spot because your one was taken. But what, imagine if all of those people were just erupting into tears at their desk. People would have looked around and said, oh my God, we are working in a horrendously abusive environment that is making everybody feel like they're just this side of a breakdown. But if you cry privately, if everybody is crying privately, it lets people think, oh, it's actually me. I can't keep up. Look at all these other people who have it together who are somehow able to make the number of articles they're supposed to write per day. It was like 20 articles a day. Yeah. Wildly ridiculous workload expectations. And folks are looking around saying, well, everybody else seems to be doing it all right. It must be me. It must be my own weakness that is that is making me cry. And you know, again, who does that benefit? It benefits the boss. It benefits the person who is now getting twenty articles a day out of all these people and all that ad revenue off of their emotional distress without any of them realizing how much potential solidarity there was all around them. And it's interesting after they laid off like a whole bunch of that first wave of workers, the next wave of people who came in unionized. Um, and there was a big like union fight in the office. And it's it's interesting to watch. I think more and more people are wising up that this model of sort of individual cap capitalism, all of us out for ourselves, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, of which not crying is such an integral part. Like that's a it's part of that myth that mythos. People are realizing that this is a lie yeah. and looking for something better. Yes, and then it's a feedback loop. It's a place where it's not safe to cry, so we don't cry there. And we make it a place where it's not safe to cry. I thought when you said crying is a social signal for people to come to the person who's mm -hmm. crying and to help and to show empathy, who would not do that? Because some people would double down, would make fun of the tears. A bully, right? Yeah. And we've basically constructed our world around bullying. Yeah. Around not becoming the target of bullying. Yeah, that if you can be strong enough, then the bully will go after somebody else. And, and I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about raising children, it's one of the, the reasons why so many parents 
will tell their kids not to cry. It's in, I was trying to interview, I interviewed lots of people for the book because I wanted it to contain you know, far more perspectives than the ones that I carry in my own body. And I spoke to a number of different children of first generation immigrants, and they were talking about the way that they yeah. felt that their parents had discouraged them to cry was even though now as an adult, they're trying to unlearn that and you know develop this capacity that they felt was really extinguished during their childhood, looking back, they still understand their parents' admonition not to cry as a sign of love. That it wasn't their parents trying to be mean or awful or, you know, emotionally damage them. It was the fact that their parents had lived the kind of lives where they were never afforded the ability to cry. They didn't have that space, that those emotional resources. They lived in a world that had treated them pretty relentlessly and had never given them that kind of space. And so they said, well, I want my child to be tough enough to be able to survive this kind of world. And a lot of them now as adults are saying, what I want for my children is a different kind of world. I don't wanna just raise another generation that's able to just suck it up and take it and succeed in an abusive environment. I want something different. One of the other uh, interviews that I loved from the book was this interview with this pediatric neurologist who specifically focused on how children learn ethics. Um, that's her whole field is, you know, how, what is the, the link between neurology and the development of more internal moral systems? Um, and one of the things that she pointed to was that when you tell particularly very young children, because there's, you know, and she was talking about how she'll get letters from, you know, parents uh, of kids as young as like six months who are, they've been like, oh, someone's telling me I should really let my kid cry it out, that I shouldn't yeah. soothe the child when they're crying because that's just going to reinforce the child's propensity for tears and we're going to be back here again. And, and she says that when you do that, you train your child to, to understand that when they are suffering in the world, help is not necessarily coming. Yeah. Um, and it really changes the way that people, and you see these results even for, you know, as young as one year or two years old, that the the sensitivity to threat is so much higher. The belief that you know aid is is forthcoming has been fundamentally undermined, and that those kinds of dispositions carry forward into adulthood. And I think there are so many people who are going around with it, this heightened sense of threat, this sense of there is not enough. These you know philosophies and ethics of scarcity that are in many ways trained in us from a very young age when we are not sure that you know, if we need help from the world, that it will be forthcoming, that there is, there might not be enough care to go around. To go back to what you were talking about before, that's almost perfect for that, like the bosses in our society where we're primed to work, get on with the job and not, not have your tears. Yeah. And you're also primed to be sensitive to, you know, somebody else is coming to take my job. Like the sort of nativism and anti-immigrant fervor that people say, like so much of that is, is predisposed in this sort of heightened sense of threat of, if they come here and have a life, then there's not going to be enough for me. Um, and I, I do think actually that crying helps to break down some of those ways that we have been acculturated. That if we can admit our own vulnerability, it actually, in a uh, paradoxical way, short circuits those, those loops of threat and scarcity. Because when we are vulnerable, yeah. oftentimes what happens is other people help us. It's amazing. I, I recently had, because I live in rural Maine, I had to stack four cords of wood, and yeah. which is a lot of wood if, you, if you're not a, a cord of wood person. Um, it's much wood. Uh, and it was going to be like a brutal, brutal day. And I was like, just 
dreading it. And then I like shot a, a text to a friend and I was like, Hey, I don't know if you're like, you're doing anything. I just, I really need help. Like I, I, I can't do this all by myself. And they were so happy to come over and we had this beautiful day stacking wood together. Um, and then I made them dinner and, you know, like came from that place of admitting that I was vulnerable, that I, I didn't have the ability to do it all by myself that seeded this beautiful social interaction that now, yeah. you know, when he needs help with something, he's probably going to ask me. Um, like those kinds, that kind of vulnerability, if it becomes an ethic, it inspires generosity from the world. And we realize that we have, we live in so much abundance. And if we just shared it better, all of us could be flourishing. All of us could be thriving. Would you have been able to ask for help? Do you imagine if it was back in the time when you'd lost your tears, you hadn't found them again? I really don't think I would have. That time period between, you know, when I was probably about 12 years old and when I was 22, I just deadened myself to the world. And some of that was a lot of particular things that I was going through, um, me coming to terms with my queerness, my discomfort in my own masculinity. Like there were all these things that I, I just couldn't deal with, that I was developing awareness of, but didn't have the emotional tools to, to really process for myself. And so, and particularly, you know, growing up in the 90s, been so much uh, lovely homophobia and other yeah. um, delightfulness. It was easier to just shut off those parts of myself. But the, the thing about you know emotional suppression is you can't just be like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut off these emotions, but not all the other ones. Um, like they all go down. The easiest way, to, exactly. Like you, you just you just deaden everything and you alienate yourself yourself from yourself. By the time that I was in my early twenties, I really didn't feel much beyond. You know, I could say, oh, I'm feeling happy or I'm feeling sad or you know, but I just it was simulacra of each emotion. You know, I in the book I use you know Plato's Plato's allegory of the cave. You know, I was watching shadows dance on the walls of my heart and making myself believe that they were real, but. It wasn't any kind of genuine emotion. And when you live like that, it really does cut yourself off from other people. And I, I see so many older men who don't have friends. This is borne out in the statistics and research too, that there are, are all of these, these you know, men in their 70s and 80s who not only do they not have friends now, but they like have never had really friends for much of their adult lives. And it's because they have are not willing to open themselves up emotionally to the world at all. Um, and I'm not trying to blame folks. I, I think so many people like this is something that has developed because they have been acculturated a particular kind of way. It's not natural. It's not innate and it's not their fault. And yet we need to recognize the kind of damage that has been done to generations of people and acknowledge the ways that so many of us also carry those scars and start to do that work to uproot it. Because if we don't do it, we are just going to pass it down to the next generation. We're going to be in the same old mess again. Well, there's this bit of research by Brene Brown that just blew my mind. It's about trust. So the question was, what makes you trust a person? One of the sources mm -hmm. of trust is they approach you for help. Yep. It's not about this is someone who you would go for help, but they actually yep. come to you and ask for help which for so many people is so hard. And I think a huge part of why I think crying is so important because in order to admit to somebody else that you need help, you actually have to admit it to yourself too. Mm. Like that's the first step. Like it's really hard to go to somebody else and say, hey, I need help with this. I can't do it by myself. I think it's almost harder to admit to ourselves that we're not totally self-sufficient. I think that actually is the rate limiting factor for so many people. Because once you admit it to yourself, 
then it becomes, okay, what can I do? And you're like, oh, well, I have, look at this, my, look at my family, look at my social connections, look at all these resources that I had at my disposal that I wasn't, you know, actively tapping into because I was operating under this delusion that I was just going to be able to make it through life by myself or in the case of like a couple, you know, as a two-person autonomous unit. Um, like I think so many of us become convinced that that is the only way to, to move through life. When none of, that's true for none of us. Like nobody has ever been self-sufficient. That, that is a wild and outrageous lie. Certainly we can, you know, develop resiliency. We can bring things to the table, but all of us, every single one of us, need our social connections, our families, our friends, our communities, if we are actually going to be able to thrive. And the people who pretend that they made it by themselves on their own are the people who are exploiting a whole bunch of folks whose labor they are not recognizing. Like that, that is the universal truth. If you see somebody who is flourishing in the world and they say, I got here by myself, they are not acknowledging all of the people that helped them get there. Like 100% guaranteed. And so I I think that crying really helps us get to that point where we can admit to ourselves, I I need help. I need help. I can't do it by myself. And that's that's not a bad thing. It's not a failure. It's not a weakness. It's just what it means to be human. That's the, the dynamic I think we see with parents as well. It's the, the parent that that doesn't allow a child's tears, in my experience, quite often hasn't found their own tears themselves for whatever's happening. And like you said, if we can help them get there, then they can be open to their child's and things just soften up then for everyone. Yeah, and, and I'm not a parent, so I try really hard to not you know, yeah. do too much armchair psychoanalysis of, uh, of how parents go through life. But I, I do think... Part of what I see in parents that discourage crying is also a resistance to opening and acknowledging that that collectively things are hard. If the child is crying and the child is having an emotionally hard time with whatever is happening, the parent has to bring emotional resources to that situation that they wouldn't have to bring if everything was fine. Fine, capital F. And so it, you don't have the kind of emotional resources, as you're saying, if, you, if you're not in touch with your own emotionality, if you're not able to access, you know, the feeling parts of yourself, then damn it, you really better hope that everything's fine all the time, because otherwise you're not going to be able to provide care for this child who you really do genuinely care about. Mm. And so it, rather than to sort of, you know, look at it from an empathic place, I don't think it's this parent saying like, oh, I want like, <laughs> what a weak, awful child I have. It's the, ch- the parent honestly not having the resources to be able to really navigate the situation and just saying, I want you to be fine because I want you to be okay. Not recognizing that to demand being okay when the child is not actually doing well is a kind of emotional violence. Yeah. Mm. I think another source of the loss of tears, apart from priming our kids and ourselves for the world of bullies, is happiness, actually. With the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Uh, before I had kids, I vowed that when I do have, when I do become a mother, mm-hmm. my children won't cry. Did you? I worked with children. Yes, yeah. I worked with children. I cared about them deeply, and I wanted them to be happy. And I vowed that my kids won't cry; that they'll be happy. Now I realize that to be happy, they have to cry. And it's easy for my two-year-old, but with my eight-year-old, he's already at school, Mm -hmm. he's a boy, which matters here. So all these ideas start to seep in that he needs to be tough and all that. And when he does have 
proper tears, those tears of futility, those sad tears as opposed to angry tears or hurt tears. And when he brings them to me, I'm honored and I know that this is resilience. And I'm so glad that he has a mother who's willing to hold that for him. You know, like, I think that's really beautiful, a, a beautiful space that you've created with your son. And that's not enough because I was also really blessed to have a mother who made space for my tears and held them. And I grew up in a culture that <laughs> outside of my home wasn't like that. And so there's only so much that you can do as a parent to overcome this these huge socializing forces that your child receives at school and you know out in the world. Like... <laughs> It's really beautiful the ways that parents can try to create that kind of sanctuary. And yet until we change the overall container, you're, you know, you're pushing the rock uphill. Absolutely. I do remember I asked Joe, because I grew up in Ukraine and uh, Joe grew up in England and he isn't aware of that. But when I was a teenager, there was this whole emo movement that became a youth subculture. Yeah, do you remember that? Oh, sure do. They were the kids who said... We will own our tears, and we will cry them. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was a punk kid, and so there was always like tension between the punk kids and the emo kids. Like, the music was very similar, but one was sad and one was angry. Yes, and, and both yes. groups were like, "Ah, oh, those other people." <laughs> Just that, na- like, you know, navigating yeah. pain, pain in different ways. <laughs> Be- because it's not ingrained in the culture anymore to own it. People had to like, basically become a subculture and be different with everything that that entails Mm -hmm. yeah and wild that that's like a a reactive subculture of of being like you know what i am gonna own my emotions not only am i gonna not hide them but i'm gonna wear them with pride you know i remember uh emo kids who would do their their eyeliner their mascara in a way that like you would see like the tears or whatever like you know she would have these like girls walking around with like these like clear evidence of crying as this this reaction to a world that had made that had made them cry, and I, I think that's really beautiful. Um, it's a little silly, but so are so many beautiful things. So are so many things that are that are powerful and honest reactions to the world. You know, I think a lot of the reaction to emo kids were like, "Oh, that's so cringe." Um, I don't know if y'all use that that word across the across the pond, but but you know, like that. Yeah, it, I think that was sort of the reaction to a lot of emo kids, and what I think that sort of revulsion is is in its own way a tacit acknowledgement that there is something that that they are doing that is making me uncomfortable and i think that discomfort comes from people not being in a place where they can acknowledge their own emotions that like that's when you you point to somebody else who's being really emotional and saying oh my god they're they're histrionic they can't handle the world when even if that person like that's a a well-formed and healthy, you know, emotional relationship that keeps them centered and keeps them in their own bodies. I, I think that sort of skepticism and revulsion by other people testifies to a lot of the numbness that so many people are carrying around. And you're right before, you know, about that link between happiness and, and crying, because that was what happened to me when I, when I stopped crying, you know, it was because I was worried about being perceived as gay or effeminate or, um, you know, weak and so whenever I would start to feel sad or, or, or feel like I had to cry, I would tamp that motion down so I could cry in a private place or, you know, wait to cry in my room. And then eventually I got really good at it. And so then I didn't need to cry later at all. I could really just suppress it in the moment and I wouldn't cry. And, and what happens if you do that over and over again for years is you just develop this instinctive reaction to feeling 
you know, that, that operates through suppression. And that, again, doesn't, you can't just target the sad feelings. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the way that emotional suppression mm-hmm. works. And so all of a sudden, you know, like I go and have fun with my friends and things, but I wasn't feeling joyful. I was just, you know, feeling like happy. Oh, tell us more, please. It sounds like you're really agile with emotional expression and suppression. Yeah. I mean, it's int- and I think part of this is, you know, I'm a minister by vocation. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my, my professional life since, and, and I, I relearned how to cry in seminary. So it was this period of really intense spiritual discernment that coincided with uh, a rebirth and the ability to feel again. Um, but then right after that, what I did is I started on a, a professional career, which in many places requires me to be really attentive to my own emotions. When you're providing care to somebody, it's important that you're not bringing in outside things that you're feeling into this this moment of emotional care. So like, for example, I used to work as a hospital chaplain. And so I would be meeting with all of these different patients and I might leave a room where a patient was dying. And I would have had, you know, this 30, 45 minutes of, of sitting with them and praying with them and caring for them as in this moment before death. And then I would go immediately to a different room where a patient was totally fine and in there for a routine procedure. And I remember one time I, I yeah. had a transition like that and I was talking to the next person and they were like, why are you, did the doctors tell you something? Like, why are you talking to me like I'm dying? And I realized it was because I had brought this other stuff into this room with me. And so you have to get really good at, you know, what am I feeling? How am I feeling it before you go into a care moment? But I think that that kind of emotional awareness training, while it, you know, is professionally essential for me, it's good and useful and leads to just a more rich and robust life for all people. The more that we are able to really be aware of what are we feeling, having an emotional vocabulary. I remember I was doing an interview with somebody about crying who, you know, who had not cried in, in decades and was in therapy and they were talking about their therapist needing to work with them to create an emotional vocabulary. Because that was actually at the point where they were where they didn't even have words to be able to describe what a feeling might feel like. Not only did, were they not feeling the thing, they just didn't even have really words to describe emotions in general. And so they were trying to develop a larger emotional vocabulary so that they could be more attentive to some of the, like, the smaller details and how they're feeling. And I think to loop it back to crying, I think crying is this really powerful way of being attentive to what we are experiencing and to the fullness and opening ourselves to the fullness of it. I think that's why so many people suppress tears is because it can feel overwhelming to really feel all of what we are feeling in its fullness, in its complexity, in its oftentimes I'm holding multiple emotions at the same time. Like All of that can feel really overwhelming to the point where we start to weep. But if we let ourselves get there and we let ourselves sit there and not rush ourselves to, again, this seductive normalcy, we actually uncover things about who we are, about our relationship with the world, emotional truths that we might not be, you know, that's why I think so many people link crying and transformation, why so many people have these epiphanies after a bout of intense weeping. It's not because there's something intrinsic about the weeping that magically unlocks these things. It's that you are opening yourself to the fullness of all the things that you have been suppressing. And that acknowledgement and interaction with the sum total of what you're experiencing allows you to get to a point where you make that hard decision that you've been putting off for so long. How does one start crying if they stopped? Yeah, that's my question as well. It's like, how do we bring people to their tears? Maybe it's children, maybe it's the most offended, maybe it's someone who's 
quite open, but they've never yep. just they've just not got there. Or I'm just asking for a friend. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Heard rumor somebody somebody has a hard time. It's interesting. I don't know why I wasn't expecting this, but that this is the question that I get all the time from so many different people that I wasn't expecting when I wrote the book. So I also get a lot of people who will share, "Oh my God, I had this beautiful experience of weeping, and this is what you know. This is how crying has been so important to me." I was expecting all of those responses, but I was not ready for just the sea of people who would reach out to me saying, "I I can't cry, and I really want to." Like that has been the heartbreaking reaction that I've gotten so many times um, that, you know, as somebody who lived that probably I should have been more prepared for, but um, it it was just really overwhelming to hear how many people for how many people that is true. What I tell them and what I'll tell you is that I think getting to cry, like how do I start crying again is the wrong question. The question is how do I start feeling again? Because if you feel enough and feel intentionally, you will get to the point where you will cry. Like it will just happen. The crying is a thing that happens when we feel intensely. Like that's just just true. That's what that's where it comes from. And so if you can get to the point where you are feeling intensely again, like the tears will unlock. Um, so for me, how I started crying again was I embarked on this bizarre uh, spiritual experiment where I made myself cry every day for like six months. And so the first time was really, really hard. I you know, had not cried in, in like a decade, and I did everything I could possibly think of. So I watched sad movies, and I listened to music, and I you know, watched like silly social YouTube videos of like dogs reuniting with owners. Like I was just trying to like, just going through like a Rolodex of anything that might make me cry. And eventually I ended up thinking about, you know, what, would I, what would I say to my parents if, if like they were dying? And I you know, what was left unsaid at that, in that moment, because at that point I hadn't come out to them. There was so much that I, I had not told them in, in that particular moment. Um, and so that was what it took in order to really feel enough that I, I started to cry again. When I cried for that first time, I just like broke down and wept for what felt like forever. And then I felt really, really great. And so I, I think more than anything, that's why I started to do this thing where I would go home at the end of the day and just try to make myself feel enough that I would cry again is because over the course of weeks and months, it just, I just started feeling great and like a different, like a better, more full version of myself. So I I could label it in hindsight as like, Oh, (laughs) look at this, this thing I did, you know, what a beautiful, like disciplined, uh, you know, meditation or something. But it really was because at the time, just because when I made myself cry, I actually felt alive in a way that I had not felt in a very long time. That to be, to be, totally clear is a wild and hugely unrealistic (laughs) approach for most people. Like I was a a seminary student. I basically had nothing to do all day but read books and go to class and uh, conduct weird experiments on my psyche. Um, (laughs) For like lots of people in the world with jobs and kids and you know, like that you don't have hours a day to sit and just like try to really make yourself feel again. But I think that there are ways that all of us can be a little bit more attentive. And so I think it becomes, you know, if you start to have a feeling rather than, you know, being like, this is not a convenient time to have that feeling, explore it. Feelings rarely come at a convenient time. (laughs) You know, we start to get really sad and you're like, oh crap, I have like work to do. I have to go like start my day. Like what happens if instead you just sat with that feeling, even if you're not going to like sit with it for, you know, an hour, what if you sat with it for five minutes? And just really focused on what it is that I'm feeling. And what does that make me notice about myself? Where does it sit in my body? How does it affect my breath? You know, like these kinds of somatic questions and sort of leaning in there. Um, 
I think what you'll notice if you continue to be attentive to your emotions in that kind of daily quotidian way is that you will just start to feel more regularly. Whereas you might have only really, you know, caught a feeling, you know, once or twice a day, maybe now throughout the day, you're going to notice, oh, I'm, I'm feeling happy. And not because there's something in my life that's particularly inciting joy. I just am, am happy. And you start to really feel, oh, wow, that feels light in my chest. I, I feel like my breath is coming a little bit easier. That, that pain that was in my side isn't, isn't bothering me as much. Or you'll be towards the end of the day and the sun is going down and you realize, oh, wow, I'm actually kind of feeling melancholy. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be linked to a particular stimulus. It could just be that all of a sudden your body is feeling a different kind of way. And if you're gentle with yourself and you see and you feel the contours and textures of that emotion and you're attentive to them, over time, this kind of awareness will give you a different relationship to your own emotionality and hopefully one that will continue to deepen. Uh, and then I think that you're just going to notice that all of a sudden you will start crying. There'll be a day where you know you haven't wept in, in months and all of a sudden you're feeling sad and you're and instead of running away from that feeling, you really lean into it and you're exploring, oh wow, I you know, I'm carrying all of this this catch in my throat, this this heartbreak from a loved one being sick or images of war or any of the other number of horrifying things that can afflict our living. And if you sit with it, all of a sudden the tears will just start to come. And so again, I, yeah, I think starting to cry is the wrong frame. The question is, how do we feel? And then the crying is going to happen. And when you do start to cry, then don't run away from it. Embrace the tears. Let them fall. Not you know, in a, in a deliberate or intentional way, but just in a making space kind of way. Making space for really being human. I think instead of my daily yoga, I might, I might seek out my favorite sad song today. I love that. There's a there's a show called Shrinking on Apple TV. Oh yeah. Um, where uh, for folks who haven't seen it, it's a story of a therapist who is his wife dies and he's going through all of this grief. And so it's a story of how he's grieving, how his daughter is grieving, um, and uh, his mentor, played by Harrison Ford, mm -hmm. is also has this relationship with his daughter and is trying to help her out. And one of the things he he tells her to do is to grieve intentionally for five minutes a day to like put on the saddest song she could. And then really just, even if the rest of the day, she's trying to sort of suppress and put that grief in the background for five minutes, can you really just feel the momentous weight of all of it? And so, you know, she'll create these little palaces in time where she can just weep and weep and weep. And I think for a lot of us, that is what it, what it takes. I remember I did an interview with, uh, with Caitlin Curtis, who's a, an author, She's written the books Native and um, writes these books that are very about, much about her own indigeneity, but also the relationship between creation care and personal gentleness and developing different kinds of relationships with the earth. And she talked, she was in her interview with me, she was talking about how one time she was at a retreat and she put her hand on the earth and tried to open herself to what the earth was feeling. And all of a sudden brought her into a, uh, this space of the overwhelming crushing weight of climate change and ecosystems dying out and, you know, mass extinction. 
she said like she could only take two minutes of that that two minutes even two minutes was overwhelming to a point where she had to stop but that's what it takes sometimes to really come to terms with the enormity of what we're facing like really give yourself to space to feel it it is too much it is wildly outrageous and unrealistic that any of us should have to move through everything that we are moving through and still be a person who wakes up and starts another day. And yet, that's what we're called to do as parents, as caregivers, as people. You wake up and you start again. And I think giving yourself space to really feel the emotional weight of all of that you will find a resilience that extends throughout the rest of the day. That that numbness actually is not serving you. We, we become very good at convincing ourselves that it does, that, oh, if I don't really feel all the things, it's going to be easier to get by, easier to get through. But the cumulative weight of that crushing numbness of af, you know, week after week after month after year creates a psychic burden that is so much greater than the emotional pain we experience when we open ourselves to the fullness of living. Absolutely. Um, a beautiful book, Cry Baby by Benjamin Perry, that I couldn't recommend more. Thanks, Olga. Could I ask one last question? Sure can. This kind of a, yeah, final question that uh, we ask all our guests. Mm -hmm. What do you do for play? What do I do for play? That's the best question ever. Uh, yeah, I so I play the guitar and I play the banjo. Uh -huh. And I love to play both of those. Um, so that's uh, making music. I try to at least for 30 minutes, an hour every day uh, to make music. Um, and then the other thing that I do for play uh, is, is gardening. I live in rural Maine. Um, and uh, we've planted six apple trees the first year we lived here. And then those were doing really well. And so then last year we planted... 50 apple trees, uh, and we're probably going to plant another 50 this uh, coming spring. And I, just like taking care of something living brings me such joy. So even though, you know, yeah, gardening is also sort of work, there is a playfulness in that relationship, particularly because I'm not, you know, I'm not gardening to live. I'm not gardening to, you know, I'm not a farmer, but like the, the ability to really be playful in, oh, I'm going to try to plant all these things and keep as many of them alive through the winter as possible. Like that, there's so much joy in that and playfulness in that for me. Oh, my fellow gardener. I know exactly there's work in it, but there's so much, you're playing with nature, actually. Yeah, it's a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's joy in that. Yeah, I've planted 11 trees in my garden. That was just a low one. We yes, in. love that. And then you get to see your trees grow, and, and these trees are going to live past me. That's the thing I love about like these apples. Like, somebody else will have an apple orchard because I carried buckets of water from the river <laughs> to try to water my little saplings. You know, absolutely. like absolutely. I love that. Yes, we're, we're now thinking about moving house and I'm just thinking on the one hand I'm sad about leaving all my trees and all my fruit bushes on the other hand I'm thinking but how they will live what a gift it will be to someone else who moves into this house yep it's yep. the legacy isn't it something that lives beyond us thank you so much Ben thank you for your work and for your book thanks so much yeah really appreciate it yeah really love the book and we'll try our best to get it change stiff upper lip in England. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Olga and Joe, for having me on the show. It's been an absolute delight. And thank you for working to make the world a gentler place. <laughs>